You can go ahead and take your seats if you would. And if you have a Bible, you can find the, the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. We're studying Matthew's Gospel account on Sunday mornings. If you're just joining us, welcome. You'll fit right in if you find chapter 18 of Matthew. I want to begin this morning by making what may sound like a couple of random statements. They're not, but they may sound that way at first, and then I'll explain. First of all, the right preaching of the Word of God. The right preaching of the Word of God. And secondly, the proper administration of the sacraments, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper. The proper administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. To some of you, you think those are two random statements and they kind of sound old. Good job. They do sound old. They come from a long time ago. Uh, They're not that random though because that's how Protestants, uh, the Protestants of the Protestant Reformation described two marks of every true church. That the true church must be characterized by Apart from these two marks, you don't have a real church. You might have a religious organization, uh, but apart from those two marks, you can't really have a true church. You have to have the right preaching of the Word of God. We could talk about that for a long time. We won't today. And you must secondly have the proper administration of the sacraments, sacred things, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And we could talk about that for a long time. We won't today. You have to have those two marks or you don't have a true church. Now, Christianity wasn't invented at the Protestant Reformation, um, but it was certainly recovered. Um, Bible's open. Let's examine tradition. Let's examine where things are. And let's recover what the Bible actually says. And when it comes to church, you definitely have to have the right preaching of God's word in light of so many clear texts. We definitely have to have the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper in light of so many clear texts. There's one other mark that I've not mentioned, which we're going to talk about this morning. The third mark, the third of three mark of a true church, according to the Protestant reformers, which we would identify with, would be in one single word, discipline. Discipline. The conclusion was the Bible is so clear about accountability in Christ's church. Jesus is so clear that if we get this wrong, how in the world could we be a true church? And so they said the third mark of a true church is you have to have formal accountability. You have to have discipline. That's what we're going to hear from Jesus today in Matthew 18. He's so clear that if we say we're not going to do that, It'd be, it would be pretty suspicious, to put it nicely. What, 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 is this a, a, a different religion? Um, no. As Christians, we would say discipline is actually important. So again, if you're just joining us, um, welcome to Discipline Sunday. Uh, it doesn't sound like it would be very good on a billboard. Um, you are welcome in all sincerity. We're studying the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 18 where Jesus talks about accountability. And we believe that Jesus is the truth and that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And so in that sense, we want to give the microphone to Jesus, and we all want to sit down and listen, uh, and, and then 
trust and obey. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, the format will be this. He gives four steps, uh, four accountability steps. Then he gives encouragement because he knows it's a hard thing to do. It's hard to do, so he's going to encourage us to do the right thing. And then he talks about forgiveness because accountability and discipline um, is not oil and water different from forgiveness. They're actually taught in the same chapter. They're both important, and they both have their place, and they complement each other. So, ready to go? I hope you're ready. We're going to have to go fast. I need to be on like one and a half speed, um, and so, or maybe two speed sometimes. And so, if you see me going to like half speed, you need to pray, if you would, because we're going to run out of time and have another service. And so, the plan is to get through that, uh, and I, I hope we do so in a way that's honoring to Christ and helpful to you. Step number one, we find in verse 15 of Matthew 18, quoting Jesus, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Maybe the first thing that we should notice, I know it's super obvious, is that there is such a thing as sin. Jesus believes there's such a thing as sin which sounds kind of strange to a bunch of Christians, but we are a bunch of Christians living in a broader culture uh, where there aren't absolutes other than there are no absolutes. But I digress. There is no, there's no strong category for sin because everything is my truth or my lived experience, but sin requires there to be something that is true, something that is objective outside of us. Sin requires that there be a law First John says sin is lawlessness. And so there has to be a positive law. God has to say, here's what's good and right. I'm the creator. You're the creature. I care about you. Here's what's best for you. Here's what you do. But to not do that would be sin. So let's acknowledge the obvious. Jesus believes in right and wrong. He believes in sin. And he teaches that if your brother sins against you, everyone is in agreement that it's a spiritual sibling uh, not necessarily a physical sibling. So uh, in, the, in the family of God, professing Christian, he's talking to the disciples. And so if your brother, spiritually speaking, sins against you, you go. You go to them. Some of your translations don't say sins against you. It just, say, it just says sins. Um, and that's because it's a little unclear uh, regarding Greek manuscripts. Is it more generic sins, or is it more particular sins against you? Depending on your translation, they render it one way or another. We don't need to split the church over it. Um, it's, it's important, but we do know that in 1 Corinthians 5, which is a complementary text, and we'll go there later, it doesn't necessarily have to be against you. And so both would actually be true. It could be when they sin against you. It could be when they sin in general, because sin is bad and destructive and hurtful toward the individual sinning and toward others. So what do we do if we care? Remember, we've just learned from Jesus about the 99 and the 1. If you care and you love someone, you do what Jesus says here, you go. You go. I never really noticed that that much before. I've studied this a bunch in my life. So it's not okay. It's not enough to leave hope you appreciate this, to leave bad enough alone. Okay, we say to leave well enough alone, but when it's sin, it's not enough to leave bad enough alone. I would like to leave it alone. 
uh, I, I would like to just go about my merry way and leave bad enough alone. But I'm supposed to care about you or you're supposed to care about me. We're supposed to care about one another. And so what do we do? If you see someone in sin or your brother sins or sins against you, you, you go. You're compelled to do something because you care. You're going to show Christian love and compassion and you're going to go to them. And I think that's important to point out because so many times this is all viewed as negative. Well, it is negative because sin is negative and sin is bad and sin is destructive. So if I care, I'm going to go. Jesus tells his disciples, it's not enough to just be indifferent. Go. Take the initiative if you need to take the initiative. Not that it's easy, but do it. And then notice what the goal is in verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Or you have won your brother, some translations say. say. So you, you've, you've, in a sense, you've brought, brought them over to your, your side of seeing things. Uh, by God's grace, you're seeing things from a spiritually sane vision perspective and you're saying look what's happening this is what God you come look at it from my angle right this is what God says in his word and and here's how it's going to hurt you and here's how it hurts other people and here's how it hurts the reputation of the church and here's how it detracts from the glory of Christ you're trying to win them over so they say you're right thank you for doing this in my life but the goal is restoration going to win them over to the right view the right perspective Again, this is not hateful. This is not hurtful. If you're doing it in a hateful, hurtful way, you're not doing it right. Restoration, reconciliation. Now, you might be thinking, if you're like me, the first time I ever heard this, you might be thinking, what in the world? I went to, I I didn't hear anything like this uh, until I was, I think, about 20 years old. I was visiting a church in Southern California on a Sunday night, and they worked, they they talked about Matthew 18, and they went all all the way through step three or four, and I was like, literally, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what? What? I'd gone to church for 20 years. What, what, What in the world? Am I in some kind of cult here on this Sunday night in Southern California? So I went home and I read it in my Bible and I only had to read it one time. I think I read it and read it and read it and read it, but I only had to read it one time to go, I believe that's true because I'm a Christian and Christ said that and it's in the Bible. Maybe I wasn't attending a cult that Sunday night. Maybe I'd been a part of one for 20 years because why in the world would we say we're Christians and we don't do this? Now you might be thinking, yeah, but, but who in the world does Jesus think he is anyway? Now, if you're thinking that, right? I'm glad you're thinking it because I have a great answer for you. But there's something to be said like, you say, well, who is this guy? Well, Matthew's been helping us learn who, who this guy is. He's been speaking and explaining who he is, who he thinks he is. In chapter 16, just quick review in chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. Oh, the church, he, he thinks he's the Lord of the church. Because he's the Lord of the church. And so it actually belongs to him to do with what, what he wants to do. So who does he think he is? He thinks he's the Lord of the church. We go to chapter 17. Who does he think he is? Saying what we're supposed to do and not do. In chapter 17, we hear God audibly speak from heaven. The Father say about Jesus, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am, remember, well pleased. And then what does the father say? 
Listen to him. Listen to him. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the eternal son who is always doing the right thing to the point where the father says, I'm well pleased and you should listen to him. And so, again, who does he think he is? He's the Lord of the church. He's the eternal son who always is right and does the right thing. Who does he think he is? We could do this all day, by the way, and it could be kind of fun, but we're going to run out of time. I'll just jump to chapter 28 by way of preview. Who does he think he is? He's going to say, all authority has been given to me. He's the one who possesses all authority. So, even though we might be tempted to sit in judgment of Jesus, even though we might be tempted to think, I think we should maybe do it a different way, it's not advisable. (laughs) Not a good idea. Not a good idea at all. Now, step two, if necessary. Verse 16 says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Please notice he still isn't at the place where it says, text the pastor. Okay? This is very private still. You're going to take a couple of people with you, a small group. This isn't public. This isn't even church public. And we've already learned what the goal is now that you have witnesses. The goal is still restoration, to win them over. But bring these witnesses. What's fascinating is Jesus, in principle, draws upon Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19.15, regarding the evidence of two or three witnesses. And what Jesus is doing, he's not doing apples to apples. He's doing apples to oranges. Um, Not in a bad way, but in a good way. Because in Deuteronomy, it's talking about breaking, um, it's a a criminal action and and, and a a court kind of setting. And and it's not that in Matthew 18, exactly. So he's drawing upon that verbiage. He's, He's using it in principle, different kind of setting, but in principle, and I would suggest to you it's for this reason, maybe a couple of reasons. This is serious. This isn't a casual kind of thing. This is, let's think, legal serious. Deuteronomy serious. And maybe another reason is because where you have witnesses, you're looking for objectivity. You're looking for clarity. You're looking for, this was not a misunderstanding. This was an actual sin violation, and it's clear, and it's clear that they're not willing to repent if they're not willing to repent. So you take witnesses with you, looking for restoration, That's the desire. And I would point out to you another positive. And that's, instead of viewing this as a real negative kind of thing, for someone who does this, I would want to stand back and watch them and say, I admire your care and your long-suffering. I'm more prone to leave bad enough alone. And by the time we're at step two, it's probably worse than we imagined. I I would just like to take a bye. (laughs) This this is admirable if somebody's going to do this. This is is they care. And now if necessary, we have step three. And verse 17 says, If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. My question for you at this point is, as you're reading this with me and we're interpreting it together, what, what would the church do? What's he expecting the church do, to do? We're going to tell the church, what are they going to do? Well, I hope we would interpret that in light of what we've already read. An individual goes out of care and concern. No positive response. Now, with witnesses out of care and concern, there's confrontation. You want reconciliation. And so, no doubt, the church now is involved, and we're going to do confrontation out of care and concern because we, we, want, we want what's good. We want, well, we want what's right. Church gets involved. And now it's church public, if you will. I'm, I'm grasping for concepts. It's not public out there for the radio, um, but it's body of Christ, church is involved. And so if it gets to this place, I would like it to never get to this place, but if it gets to this place, we're going to have a decision to make. Do we follow Jesus and do what he says for the good of another person? Or do we say, uh, we're going to do it a different way, like we're a different religion? It's an important question. For me, uh, I have to have some come to Jesus moments um, now and then, because I would like it if we never, ever, ever, ever did this. I know every membership class we ever teach, we say, we believe in church discipline uh, because we want to be a true church, and so we want to follow Jesus, and so you need to know what you're getting into before you sign up and before you get your jersey issued to you. Um, This is part of the deal, okay? We're, We're not playing games. It's a serious thing. But I do have to, when it does happen... One thing I found to be helpful is um, to read, for example, like Revelation 1 to 3. And Jesus moves among his churches, paying attention to his churches. And that's important. That's super helpful. I would encourage you to be helped in that way too. Jesus isn't um, saying, hey, whatever you want to do, go for it. To the point where he's even moving among his churches and in dealing with the seven churches in Revelation, he affirms some of them. But he also issues points of correction and confrontation, sometimes seriously. And so it's healthy for us to be reminded it's not our church. It's actually his church and he's not sleeping on the job. Right? Here's what I want to do. I, I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. I want to be a part of the true church, not a fake church. I don't want to be a part of Patty Anity or whatever the leader's name is. It just sounds gross. Um, <laughs> I want to be a part of true, authentic Christianity. And so what do I want to do? I want to obey Christ and do what Christ says and trust Him for the results. And that sometimes means for me personally saying, Lord... It's not my church. <laughs> We're going to do the right thing, but take, take care of us. Because confrontation is hard. People who like confrontation, I'm not even going to finish that sentence. Right? We, 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 think, we think there's something wrong. So in that sense, I think there's something okay with saying, wow, this makes me uncomfortable. Sin is bad and it makes people uncomfortable and it creates conflict, but it's still the right thing to do. Okay, let's move on now to step four, if necessary. Step four is in verse 17 as well. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
The ESV translators, at least on purpose, took the word for even or and there, and they put it in italics to catch the idea, and I think they're doing the right job in doing that, even to the church, to the point where if you're spiritually sober, you would say, it went step one, it went step two, it went step three, the church is now involved. Surely anyone with any spiritual sense about them at that point is going to say, okay, I hate my sin. You're right. Thank you for helping me. But it doesn't always go that way. And he says, if they won't listen even to the church, which is an extraordinary thing, not an ordinary thing, he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And if that sounds harsh to you, I submit to you, you probably should think it sounds harsher than you even realized. It's gone to the level of radical tough love. A Gentile, sometimes translated pagan, think of it in these terms, would be one who who doesn't have a right relationship with the one true and living God, Yahweh. They're not a worshiper of the one true and living God, Yahweh. They're worshipers of something else. A pagan. You're going to treat someone who professed faith in Christ like someone who doesn't even belong to the same God. That's hardcore. And if you need more hardcore, maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe the next designation is even more hardcore when he says, and a tax collector. Matthew was a recovering tax collector, (laughs) a former tax collector, okay? So he knows about this. Oh, the irony of Matthew's account. Tax collectors are traitors. So Jewish people who out of desire for selfish gain would be willing to make an unhonest buck with the backing of the Roman government from your friends, family, and neighbors and fellow worshipers of the one true God. It's a bad look. It's a really bad look. Here's the idea. Here's the idea. These are people that you don't associate with anymore apart from repentance. I know that's the idea because I have an inspired explanation of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, okay? So if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read it. We're going to read it quickly on 2.0 speed, but it actually is an appropriate parallel passage from an apostle of Christ whose name is Paul, and it seems to take uh, step 4 and elaborate on chapter, uh, excuse me, step 4. So fast forward, Corinthian church, Christ has ascended, he's gone now, and the Corinthian church has lost sight of this. So the Apostle Paul has to help them blow the dust off their Bibles, if you will, and say, look, this is a problem in your church, and he's going to make it clear when it gets to step four, there's, there's no more positive encouragement, okay? So if you would, go ahead and turn there, if you haven't already turned there. It says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. You're happy about this. You're boastful about this. You're, you're claiming to be so wonderful and tolerant and Christianly. Ought you not rather to mourn? Implied answer is yes. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So that's what I, I the first thing I highlighted is that if, the, if it's to that place, they're, they're to be removed, they're to be put out. This is chapter four elaboration, step four elaboration. 
Then notice in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He, he's, he's laying down his apostolic support card, if you will. When you are assembled in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's important. Verse 5 I also highlighted. When it gets to this place, they're to be removed and they're to be delivered over into the domain of who? Into the domain of the devil, into the domain of Satan, into the domain of darkness. So that hopefully, perhaps, by the grace of God, they will tap out and say, Uncle, my life is terrible. I've not been encouraged. I have no Christian fellowship. I have none of the sweet, wonderful things in my life that I once experienced. I'm done. I see my sin for what it is. I want back in. But in the meantime, remember, it's not time for step one, step two, step three. We've gotten to step four and it's, we're done, at least for a while. Again, if you, if you want to start a religion, you might not do it this way. Um, it's a free country. I think you can still start a religion. I don't advise it. Um, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ says, this is what we do. So he goes on to say, verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Just ever so quickly, I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment and say, notice he's, re- he's bringing them back to the gospel, back to the work of Christ, back to him being our Passover lamb. And if that's the case and you've been forgiven and reconciled, it's not time to continue wallowing in the muck and mire of sin. It's time to celebrate and do the right thing now that you're united to Christ. Then verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You'd have to leave planet earth. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idol- is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Notice that. Not even to eat with such a one. There's no Christian encouragement, fellowship. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? It's actually, that was steps one, two, and three. After step four, we actually have delivered them into the domain of darkness. Not even to eat with such a one. Verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Implied answer is nothing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Implied answer is yes. God judges those outside. Then he looks at them, purge the evil person from among you. Let me take a breath. It's so weird and backward that the church oftentimes gets things exactly wrong. The Corinthians were happy lambasting unbelievers for living like unbelievers and thinking that was their calling where we're going to just tolerate anything and everything amongst the family of God. And Paul says, you got it exactly opposite. We would expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. We would ex- expect believers to act like believers. Absolutely. 
Fascinating how we lose sight of this. It's no wonder the church has a terrible reputation. I mean, I think there are other reasons, and sometimes it's not honest when people accuse the church of certain things. But in a certain sense, if the shoe fits, wear it. Think of all the things that are done in the name of church life and church ministry where sin is celebrated, covered up, tolerated. doesn't make any sense. And to say, well, this is because we're Christians. You haven't read the book. You totally haven't read the book. Let's not get this exactly wrong. And now some encouragement, because we all need encouragement. So if you came looking for encouragement, here it comes. Okay, notice verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if that sounds kind of odd to you, I don't blame you. I think it sounds kind of odd the way it's worded. And if we all had perfect memories, and we've read Matthew 16 before, it would make more sense. In Matthew 16, same verbiage is used when Jesus talks to Peter and the apostles because they're going to be uh, the ones who start the church. And he talks about binding and loosing in the context, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's in chapter 16. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And what do keys do? They lock and unlock. And we talk about that at some length. I won't review all of it now. But by proclaiming the gospel, which is the church's mission, it's what we're called to do, among other things, but we are called to preach Christ to people. That is what opens up. It's what looses the kingdom of heaven. So if people trust in Christ, they believe in the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And we proclaim that message. And as such, we have the key to unlocking heaven. We also have the key to locking heaven, which is the gospel in another sense. Because if people don't believe the gospel, the truth about Christ, heaven is locked to them. And we tell people that. You must believe in Christ. No other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so we unlock through the gospel and we lock through the gospel. And now, so interestingly enough, Jesus is talking about locking Chapter 4, church discipline. Pretty, pretty big deal. If you have a really low view of the church, um, this is going to be one of those do not, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute moments. Now, this is one of those texts that, that, that elevates your view of church seriousness and importance. Not on your own authority, not because you think so highly of yourself, not because of all your rules and regulations. But if you're under submission to me and the way I've said this and laid these things out, heaven is locked to the one who is ultimately put out. It's a pretty serious thing. It's very serious. The reason it's encouraging is because he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's encouraging because he's saying, if you've done it this way, step one, carefully, lovingly, prayerfully, all of those things. Step one, for the good of the other person. Step two, yes. Step three, yes. And step four, yes. You need to know that 
the living God is saying, Amen. Whatever you've decided there, we've decided here. The, the, the decisions match. It, it is, it's for sure what he's getting at. And I need to know that because I don't want any part of this stuff sometimes. So we're going to do the hard thing. Oh, I hate doing hard things. I just need to know that heaven is saying, Amen. That's right. That's the good and right thing to do. He says something similar to this in verse 19. Uh, some of the most out of context taken verses ever. Um, if you have these on a plaque out of context, we're going to have a plaque burning uh, service next Sunday. You can bring your plaque. Um, these verses aren't about sports. Um, they're not about any such things. I kid about the plaque burning thing. Okay. But let, let's read them in context. Again, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, remember two or three witnesses, or one or two witnesses and then two and three, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Are those verses true? They're absolutely true. But they actually do come to us in a context. If this is the decision that's rendered, you need to know that I am there in your midst in your decision making. As sure as my name is Pat and I'm standing in Omaha, Nebraska right now, that's what it means. <laughs> and it's meant to encourage. Sinclair Ferguson is one of my favorite living authors and preachers. Um, and he talks about uh, he, he tries to encourage Christians in their singing, because why wouldn't we want to sing as unto the Lord? And so he says, when you, when you sing, if you're at a church that has hymnals, think of yourself as holding the hymnal, sharing a hymnal with Jesus, and it'll probably affect your heart and your mouth. Okay? I like that. If you were holding a hymnal with Jesus, it probably, wouldn't not, it probably would be heartfelt. Well, to borrow from that, when we have to do church discipline, we should know that we're holding the Bible with Jesus. We're holding Matthew 18 with Jesus. He's in our midst. It's a decision from heaven because we've done it the right way. Now that could go to your head. And you could do wrong things with that information. But clearly that is what he's saying. Okay. Now, forgiveness. I better go faster. I'm going to have to ask for your forgiveness. Okay? Serious, sin, sober-minded, discipline. It begs the question, what about forgiveness? And we can count on Peter to ask the question. Right? But we're going to see Peter's growing. He's spending enough time with Jesus. He's, he's asking better questions. Okay? Here we go. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Well, he's growing because rabbinic tradition, at least from what I've read, I'm not an expert, but from, from what I've read, suggests that three, you, you forgive him three times and that's, that's when the grace runs out and the mercy runs out and then it's, right? So Peter is more than doubled the quota for, for the standard, Right? Not just three, seven. Maybe because it seems like a complete number two. Seven times, right, Lord? Oh, Peter, you've done such a great job. We should build basilicas after your name, right? I mean, he's just so good and so spot on. Well, let's keep reading. It says, 
In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations might say 70 times seven. Now, I don't know anybody who thinks Jesus means, and once it gets to 491, right? Off with their heads. Uh, I, I'm no, nobody thinks that. But what we think is, Peter uses a number, and Jesus uses that number, and he explodes that number to make a profound point. You, you forgive, and you keep forgiving, and you forgive again, and you forgive again, and you forgive again. Yeah, but what about all this discipline? And, and they, they, they've been disciplined, and then they repent, and then they get disciplined, and they repent. And how, how does that work? Well, I think it works like 70 times 7. You just keep doing it. You just keep doing it. Which is counterintuitive sometimes for me. I think, I've seen you before. I know how this works. If we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of being gracious. That's what we're going to do. Well, with that in mind, what we need to do now is hear a parable from Jesus and then we wrap up. I'm compelled to make this a two-part sermon, but that would really mess up the first two services. So, Here's a parable. We'll go quickly. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay? That, that, that's more than you could pay over multiple lifetimes. It's this astronomical, massive amount of money. And that's important. So let's keep going. I'll tell you why it's important in a second. And since he could not pay, this is verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payments be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Which actually is a good heart desire, but it wouldn't actually be able to happen. Uh, verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's meant to be seen by Jesus, heard from Jesus. This is, this is massive. 28 says, But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii would be a day's wage. So a hundred days wages. That's a big amount, but it actually could be paid off. So that's the point of contrast. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Implied answer is yes. Then verse 34 says, and in anger, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Maybe we could summarize it this, this way. Christians forgive. I'll put it another way, but the same way. Christians forgive. Because by definition, Christians have been forgiven, right? And, if, and if, let me put it negatively. And if you don't forgive as a Christian, 
your, your Christianity is suspect. Right? It sounds a lot like you're going to face judgment day because you don't actually understand what Christ has done. Because God is great and has a perfect standard and, and we don't meet the standard and so our sin is grave and awful. And, and then Christ did an extraordinary, amazing thing in making atonement, the otherwise unthinkable. Christians understand they've been forgiven much. We understand it so much, we realize that we don't even understand how much. Oh, the gravity of my sin and misery. What a Savior. So if I'm not willing to forgive you, even if it means again and again and again and again, I won't do it 491 times. But you get the idea. You can know about me that I actually don't understand the gospel. Because I've been forgiven so much. Surely that's the idea. A few final questions regarding these things. And then we'll be done. One, I think, is really important. And I hope maybe you've asked it in your mind. How does this relate to chapter 1, verse 21? Which is where we go every week. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His great work means salvation to you is free. He saves us from our sins. So how does that work? Or does that conflict with if your brother sins, go to him. If your brother sins, go to him. If your brother sins, go to him. I thought our sins were taken care of. It's actually an important question. Our sins are taken care of. Our sins are taken care of by Christ. He came to save his people from their sins. But what he doesn't save us for is to sin greatly. (laughs) He doesn't save us so that we just wallow in the muck and mire of sin. That was the gist of what he was getting at in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We've been crucified with Christ, Romans chapter 6 would say. And so we've not only been crucified with Him, we not only have died with Him, we've been raised unto newness of life. And so in chapter 6 of Romans, we're called to live different lives. Not to be saved, but because we're saved. And so we have to have the right categories or we won't understand. Let me put it another way in theology speak. Authentic biblical Christianity is not antinomian, anti-law. We're not antinomian. Live however you want to live now that you're a Christian and you have fire insurance. Let's think of it in terms of law for a second. God's law requires perfection. Love God and love neighbor is the summary according to Jesus. And we've all failed. We're under condemnation. So we move to Christ who fulfills the law and atones for all of our law breaking. We're still in the law category. We look to Christ. He meets the obligation. And now that he's met the obligation and we're united to him by faith, we have a third area. And now the law of God, which is still the law of God, it's no longer condemning us. Now that we're in Christ, it is, as the psalmist says, a light unto our path. It is what's right, it is what's good, and it is what glorifies God. And now we've been regenerated, we've been given the Spirit, we have the Word of God, we have fellowship with other believers. Out of gratitude, we want to celebrate Allah, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so, that helps us at least to think it through a little bit. We're saved to live for Christ, not saved to sin freely. 
Just a couple more questions by way of application. I actually have a long list here. Maybe we'll put it in an article or something like that because so many questions come up related to, relating to church discipline. But just a couple more. My next question is, why don't more churches do this? And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe more churches aren't churches. If I'm speaking like a Protestant reformer. Maybe Omaha Bible Church isn't your cup of tea. Uh, If you're a member, it is, so you're welcome. (laughs) But I would plead with any Christian before they go and become a member of a church that if they're not willing to do church discipline, in light of how clear Jesus is, why would you trust him with editing God's word elsewhere? I hear from pastors sometimes and they'll say things like, well, if we did what you do, what you're talking about, we would lose a lot of people and visitors wouldn't want to come. I I sympathize with that. We have a decision to make. Are we trying to build a religion or are we trying to be Christians who submit to the authority of Christ? It's fascinating in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lie. All they did was lie. And God strikes them dead. And you know what it says in Acts chapter 5? That the people were afraid. How about that for a marketing campaign? Come to Omaha Bible Church. God may strike you dead. Don't lie. It's a little bit different than everyone welcome. (laughs) I kid a bit, but... It is interesting that we, we have to make a decision. Are we going to do the right thing? Or are we not going to do the right thing? And if we're not going to do the right thing, I'm out. I can find better things to do than play games. Let's be a church that honors Christ, not because we're perfect, but He is, and He's not mumbling, and He's understandable. I also would want to encourage you with this. No guarantees, no guarantees. We might, be the, we, we might be able to write books about how to be a shrinking church instead of church growth. No guarantees, but in the book of Acts it says, and the Lord added to their number greatly. Not a promise he's going to add to our number greatly, but trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Final question, and it's an important one, and I won't answer it adequately, I promise. Can there be, after step one or two, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, but still have negative consequences that follow? Long question, I know. I'll say it again, maybe a different way. Can it be that there's step one or step two, and there's repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, but because there's sin there still is fallout after. And the answer to that is actually yes, and it's what makes this so complicated and sin so confusing sometimes. For example, sometimes people do something that's sinful and illegal. Confronted after step one or step two, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, but there's one more Asian that might follow, and it's incarceration because it was illegal. Forgiven, forgotten from our perspective, but there's a consequence. That that happens sometimes. Um, There are people who are part of this church who are dear 
believers who've done things in their life um, that they've been forgiven for, restored for, treated as equals in Christ, but because of the nature of the things that they've done that we don't announce and make public, there are certain ministries that wouldn't be appropriate for them to function in, like children's ministry. And I won't even say any more about it, but if you have common sense, you go, I, I, I see that. On one occasion, it's not with anybody who's here, uh, and I won't name names anyway, but someone had a pretty prominent place at Omaha Bible Church in a leadership role. Um, somebody tattled on him, uh, if you will, uh, from outside of the church, even outside of the state, and uh, talked about the things that he was doing. And so he was confronted, and he repented, and there was restoration and forgiveness. But the very public leadership platform that he had previously was gone. Here's the rub. I'm not going to come before you and say, here's what this person did and here's why they're not in a public ministry anymore. I'm not going to do that because that would be unbiblical because there was repentance at step one or step two. Trust me, my life would have been easier to tell you or maybe to have a staff person tell you. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing even when it comes to discipline but the person wasn't qualified based upon other texts to carry the position they carried in the past. And it led to all kinds of trouble at this church, unfortunately. But what we don't want to do is pretend like we're doing steps three and four when we actually stopped at step one or step two. It's hard. It's frustrating, to be honest with you. I say like Romans 8, Lord, how long? Come back. Sin is awful. And it just makes my life bad, personally and corporately. One final example, and I won't get into too much because chapter 19 deals with divorce, and Jesus is going to talk about divorce, okay? But I will say there are occasions when this happens, there's sin that happens in a marriage that breaks the marriage covenant. Sometimes in step step one and step two, and there's repentance, reconciliation, and forgiveness. So it stops. Now, where you're sitting, you might think, I, I want to know the details or what's happening or nobody's doing anything. And Well, if it's step one and step two, it stops. But I also should let you know that there might be ongoing ramifications, fallout, consequences, because the marriage covenant was broken. And when the marriage covenant is broken, there may be freedom for biblical divorce. Oh, Sin. Sin is bad, but you should know that forgiveness in Christ is grand and it is wonderful and it's what sustains us and motivates us even to talk about something like this. We need to be done for this morning. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for allowing us to begin thinking about some of these things. Uh, In so many ways, it causes us to have so many more questions. But we're grateful that the Lord of the church cares. Help us not to be like the, the person in Proverbs who doesn't discipline their child and shows that they don't love their child. Help us to be like one who loves children and brings discipline, as the Proverbs say, and to love other believers and to bring discipline even in the life of the church. We know you as our Heavenly Father certainly think like that. Encourage us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed. Have a great day.